Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun. Today, we have Sherry Odom with us, and we're going to be digging into the topic of brain health, of community, but of innovation, but also really about relationships and building relationships so that we can start to work towards building a better future in the world of brain health. We're also going to be digging into the concept of the business of brain health. What does that look like? (laughs) What does it look like now? What could it look like in the future? Uh, We're going to be talking about the need for uh, neuroplasticity-based options in the business of healthcare. So uh, today, I'm very, very excited to share, you know, Sherry and her story about getting into the world of brain health with our audience today. Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time. Mark, it's a real treat for me to be here today. I love the work you're doing and I love this podcast and I'm so excited to be able to share my passion for neuroplasticity with your audience. That's great. Well, uh, now after this episode, it's going to be our audience because <laughs> we're doing this together. So, and I was remiss in mentioning that, you know, Sherry is the founder of the NPA and she'll be digging into what that means throughout uh, this episode. So you're going to want to learn more about that as well and what led her to the creation of that organization. So let's get right into it, Sherry. Sherry's uh, joining us from Atlanta, Georgia, or the Atlanta area, and it is uh, unseasonably cold there right now. And let's get into it. What frustration or what real problem forced you into creating this organization focused around neuroplasticity and health? Yeah, thank you, Mark. I mean, that really is the root of it. It's a personal story, and it really involves my family to begin with. My daughter, as I think, you know, a lot of people who've heard me speak might know, she has several learning difficulties, dyslexia, ADD, auditory processing, and a few more there. And my mother, uh, she also was um, dealing with multiple sclerosis. So I was the caregiver for these two neurological challenges and, you know, had been going through the traditional care programs for both of them and really just watching neither of them thrive, right? My daughter went through a special school for three years and it was fantastic. It was great. She really uh, recovered and regained a lot of her confidence, but, you know, she still had those challenges at the end of the day. She was able to read when she got through the school and was able to do well, but her processing wasn't where it needed to be. And so I really worried about her future and what sort of goals would she be able to accomplish of hers that she set out for herself. And then on my mother's side, you know, she had been dealing with multiple sclerosis for over, you know, I think it was 15 years or so when I finally ran into neuroplasticity and it sort of helped me over that hump, but it was just a continuing decline, even though she was getting the best care that was out there and taking care of herself and doing everything she thought that she could do. And, you know, she had gotten to the point where she was really almost bound to a wheelchair. She needed to be, even though she continued to fight and struggle with that on a daily basis. So, You know, I just was frustrated by that process. No matter how hard you work, what you do, it just seemed like you really weren't making any real progression towards getting over these diseases or these challenges. And then one day I just happened to uh, see something about Dr. Norman Deutsch's books and I picked one up and read it in like two days. I couldn't put it down. And I just knew right away. I said, this is going to solve my problem. And it did. My mom really went through a one-month program at the Shepherd Center that was really neuroplasticity-based therapy. And she came out of there not needing a wheelchair, not needing a walker, not even needing a cane. The woman was back to herself. Not only was she physically better, her cognition was quicker. She was able to um, recall words, be able to take care of herself. Her fatigue had decreased. So it was for me, yeah, it was like a miracle. You know, it was like Mm -hmm. a miracle. Mm -hmm. 
And then my daughter, she went to the listening center up in Toronto, Canada. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of a three month process. And, you know, I'll never forget once it had fully integrated, which was really, I think that process by the time she got to that point was probably about six months over the time frame. I'll never forget it. She's like, mom, I can all of a sudden understand what the teacher is saying. I mean, she came home from school with that one day and I noticed it. The teachers noticed it. They all asked me what had happened. Her end of year testing on her uh, cognition had jumped like by 30%. Wow. And so I was like, okay, you know me, Mark, when I get into something, I get in deep. I had been really (laughs) researching and really trying to figure out how do I help my mom? How do I help my daughter for all these years looking at alternative therapies? And I ran across these and they worked. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, if I don't know about these, right, and my care team doesn't know about these, then nobody probably knows about these. And I said, there's a real gap here. And all of my, you know, friends were in the same boat. They're taking care of their parents. They've got children who are struggling or there are people with brain injury who are suffering and stroke and all of these other challenges that people face throughout their lifespan. And I just said that there's a need here. There is a definite gap in this space. I know what to do. My background was um, business oriented and it wasn't healthcare. It was in the energy space and agriculture space and heavy industry. So it was none of this, but I knew how to grow business. I knew how to take something small, expand it, scale it and move it forward. And when I looked at the barriers that were in this industry to move it forward, that the industry of neuroplasticity and all the caregivers, I said, there's a need here. I think I can help. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. So you're such a nice and positive person, but how does it make you feel when you know that there are, are programs available, but yet most people have no clue? Like, how does that make you feel inside? Well, um, you know, there is a little piece of me that I don't really get sad. I get frustrated and it moves me to action. You know, I feel like if there's a reason, there's got to be some sort of a reason. What is that reason? And let's break it down into components and let's tackle each one of those. And that's really what we've done with the Neuroplasticity Alliance. I founded this organization, you know, NPA for short to really tackle each of those barriers and break them down one by one. And when I break them down, Mark, there's sort of three categories. There's awareness people. There's the individuals who don't know that these therapies are out there. There are the healthcare professionals who are not engaged in this space and they aren't aware of them. And then there are actually the providers in this space who are in their niche that really are not connected with the broader realm of providers and neuroplasticity who don't really know what the others are doing. So -hmm. there's a real lack of awareness out there. And that's really, you know, sort of point one of what I want to do with that. The other real big issue is access, quite frankly. So while even though you may not know they're out there, and like in my case, I had to travel to Canada to get treatment, right? Uh, If you look at the Mind Eye Institute, there are one office in Chicago, And many of the speakers that we just had on our summit, you know, they only have one location and they don't have a mindset for scaling. They're so involved in what it is that they're doing that they're not looking at it from a business standpoint. And I think that's really where you guys, ABI Wellness, really differ in the industry because scaling is part of your model. It's part of how you think about it. And, you know, I think we have a lot to learn from how you were doing that. And I would say the Aerosmith program is another really great Mm -hmm. example. When you talk Mm -hmm. to Barbara, that's one of the metrics they use in how they develop their strategy. Is it something that's scalable? How many people can we help with this? How do we get it out to the broader targeted areas who need this? And, but that DNA is not woven into so many of the providers in this space. Right. They're so motivated by helping individuals and it's so exciting for them to see those results that that's where they want to focus on that individual patient. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think we need to do a lot in that space. And then the other big issue on that is cost, right? Because, you know, 99% of the population who need this probably can't afford these because it's mostly out of pocket, at least here in the United States. I think Canada and the UK and uh, other countries, maybe in Europe, is doing a much better job of that. So one of our goals is really to break that down and understand what does the insurance company need to help determine where the cost benefit of covering these therapies are. Doing the research that the physicians need and the insurance companies need to show that clinical data that would bring acceptance in those spaces. And again, I think you, ABI Wellness, really stand out in the industry for doing all of that research and making that part of your business program. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to. Still hard, of course, but we're trying to. The whole goal is access, exactly what you said, and really having more informed choice out there in the marketplace. And unfortunately, you know, one organization I've been in touch with, they're, you know, around leader in this work. And sadly, one of the responses we got, we're trying to make it accessible as an option for them. And it was interesting, and I won't name them, but it's interesting hearing the response was that some of the feedback was that many people that they see would not have the cognitive endurance to engage in a program like this. And I was like, it makes me think of the stoic literature, like the obstacle is the way. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yes, you're right. And that's why you have to, (laughs) like, that's the point. Like, like, Like in physical medicine, we don't say, you know, his knee is severely damaged. So we're not going to work on improving the function of that knee. So we're going to accept that he can no longer move. They're going to try to exhaust potential to improve that first. But that was the nature of response I just got. And I'll tell you, it makes me so frustrated. Yeah. It makes me so disappointed because we have so much work to do. It just shows you how big that mountain really is. Because this is a great human being, wonderful person amazing person, great organization, but that's the response. So then you wonder on your end, okay, how do I explain this better? What did I do wrong? How do I support better? Because this is all rooted in servant leadership, as you've said so well. So what do you think about that? Yeah, there's a real gap in healthcare today in the United States between acute care and more long-term care that is needed to treat these sort of neurological challenges. You know, mm-hmm. Mark, 50% of the population, if you think about it, is struggling with some sort of neurological challenge. 50%. Mm-hmm. That's a huge number, right? And these aren't things that can typically be addressed with um, some sort of, you know, a pharmaceutical, um, so, some sort of short duration treatment. It needs longer care and sometimes lifetime care. And that's a real difference in how we think about healthcare in the United States. When you add, you know, there's the 20% of the population that is sort of in the learning difficulties, developmental delay component, and that's sort of the younger, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the younger generation. And then you've got another 30% that's in the brain injury, Alzheimer's, stroke, that realm, and Parkinson's. You can put Parkinson's in that, multiple sclerosis as well. And, you know, brain injury, the average age of brain injury is 32 and then you've got, you know, the um, stroke and Alzheimer's. That's typically something that's a more, you know, adult senior time span in our mm-hmm. life. These challenges are over the lifespan. They're not concentrated in one age group. They're not concentrated in one type of individual. And so we really need to step back and think about how do we look at the long-term care from, you know, childhood all the way through to senior care if we're going to be able to solve that. And so. I think it's very short-sighted. It's, you know, the quick hit, quick fix. And that's part of what we hope to change with our messaging to show that it is 50% of this population, to show that it is something that needs to be addressed over the lifetime. Totally. Yeah. One always wants to approach these situations with compassion, right? You know, everybody's dealing with something. They've got other priorities that they might be going through, but my concern is if that's the response and one is not willing to entertain other ways of doing things, 
and not open to different ways of doing things, that's not acceptable. You've got to listen to other options and challenge your own biases. And I think that's part of the thing that really goes under the surface here with some of this is maybe some people are not even aware of some of their biases. These could be great people, but they're not even aware when you hear about Sherry Odom and this neuroplasticity alliance. Well, you know, in a lot of outpatient rehab, neuro means a lot of different things. And that term can mean a lot of different things. And how do you think about that challenge and that topic when somebody is just not willing to entertain these sorts of innovative approaches, these innovative therapeutic processes? Yeah, that's a big struggle. And I think it has to go back to do with the research that needs to be done, Uh, you know, because so many of these individuals, when they went through med school, right, this wasn't Mm -hmm. part of what they learned. And it wasn't part of how their mindset rationalized or thought through the treatment care plan. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been a broad acceptance of it in this space. And I think it goes back to some of it is just, uh, well, I'll say it in my Southern times, being a little bit hard-headed, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. you're not open to new things because this isn't what you've been taught. It wasn't how you got through med school. But the clinical evidence is there. Mm-hmm. We just need to document it and show them and put it in terms so that they understand it in the way that they think. And I think that is a huge task that we have to undertake. You can't ask individuals to just accept something on face value. These are scientists in their mindset and they need to see the science behind it in order to change their mind. And that's fair. I think that's fair because letting the data speak is key. And, you know, that's one thing where I'll kind of agree with them is a lot of organizations have come out with these wonderful applications that look amazing right? They're gamified. They look really cool, super interesting. But when you dig into what's underneath it, there's not a lot of research data behind it. And I think that's something that, you know, buyer beware when these medical organizations, especially if they get burned once, right? Hoping that it would work, but it not really passing the research test. I can understand. I can acknowledge that. But I think one also has to acknowledge that you should not you know, paint every different new organization with the same brush. You got to be careful with that because you could miss the opportunity to finally treat that patient that might have, you know, central auditory processing disorder with cognitive issues. At the root of that, you may have missed the opportunity to more reliably treat that individual within your own location, because that's what we're talking about here is you shouldn't have had to go up to Toronto to do that. You know, people shouldn't have had to move to Vancouver to do some of the work that we do. We should make these options more available. And it all starts with education. That's why I love what you're doing. It's so good. It's so important. Sharing these innovative resources with the public so that people can make more informed choices. But that's also for the medical professionals, too. And again, that's not everyone. You know, I believe everyone gets into this sort of a profession because they love helping people. It's such a hard job really challenging, but challenging and acknowledging our own bias is really important when we think about that work. Yeah, I think you've really brought up a good point. And it's something that I think the messaging around that needs to be improved, right, from the healthcare industry. And and I think the functional care providers are doing that. They're moving that discussion forward. There isn't a person in my network who doesn't see a functional doctor nowadays, Right? They still have their primary care. And I, I know that I'm hyper-focused on this. So all of my friends are in that space, but I think everybody is entertaining that. And if you look at the investment overall, even by like Duke Hospital, Mount Sinai, I mean, they're all investing in these wellness uh, mm-hmm. locations that are incorporating yoga, mindfulness, acupuncture. And so the attitude is changing. It's a little bit slower than I would like for that to happen. Um, And I think the way to do that is to continue to generate this awareness. I think people have to be aware of what's out there and it's not in the mainstream. So you've got to take this niche miracle of neuroplasticity and you've got to move it out. And that does take time though, Mark. And of course, yeah, 
what is the average? It's almost 40 years, I think, from the time something is discovered in medical research to the time it's applied and accepted universally in the healthcare field. Yeah. So you would think that would be shorter nowadays, but (laughs) I don't know that that's the case. Norman Doidge really popularized that. And that was back in what, I think that was 2015 sort of Mm -hmm. timeframe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we are in 2020. So that's seven years. The research for it goes back even, you know, another 50 years. So yeah. it's really slower, I think, than some of the other. If you look at neuroplasticity that's being used in heart surgery, for example, nerve stimulation to treat heart disease. I mean, that was only discovered, what I think, like 17 years ago, and it's yeah. already being used. And uh, insurance is covering that service. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, with the brain, it's slower. And I think that has to do with the recognition that mental health care is not on equal par with physical health care. Right. I think that's such a good point. And I'm interested in what you just said there when you talk about the relationship. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind explaining the relationship between mental health and brain health. How do you think about the relationship between those two terms? Well, I think research is proving there really is no difference, you know, and I think that is the fundamental component behind why neuroplasticity is so powerful. The brain and your hormones and everything that you're, even your emotions and your thoughts affect the wellness and function of your body. The two are so connected. And I think the practice of, I guess mindfulness is really helping to close that gap because that's accepted widely now that mindfulness will help you regulate your emotions, which affects your heart rate, which affects your cortisol levels, and that affects your mood. And it's all very circular. And I think that's coming to fruition. So I think the gap is closing. The issue is how to apply all of that. I think that's really where we are as a society and trying to close that gap. You know, psychologists in general, they don't know and they see a lot of the research out there now talks about the use of neuroplasticity and mindfulness and how that can shorten the gap for treating mental challenges, but it's not something that's been applied widely again. So to me, I think there's a wide set of knowledge and research out there to support what we're doing, but it's the application of it that is missing. So how do we take what's already out there, apply it, and put the research behind it to be able to demonstrate that those applications are attaining the results that we see in those individuals from an anecdotal standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of a couple things. It makes me think of the work of kind of James Clear and Atomic Habits, where mm-hmm. like you are what you repeatedly do. So if the system's not working. You're part of the problem. Like if you're in charge of a system of mm-hmm. care and it's not working continually, you're part of the problem. <laughs> now, if you're not compelled yeah. to do something about it, so be it. That's okay. Not everyone's going to. But if you're frustrated by it not working, then maybe you should change it right like and i like what you said about you made it sound simple but it's actually pretty complex you're talking about systems theory where okay what's the desired outcome what do we want to try to do okay then how do we reverse engineer it so that we have a system that could enable people to engage in a program that could actually yield a better outcome a more organized structured process towards a better outcome And that's really, I I really resonated for me because that was what, just one example, that's what Bears is all about. You know, initially, you know, Barbara Aerosmith Young, remarkable human, world changer, amazing. You know, she created this amazing program, this, you know, Aerosmith Brain X program. It's amazing. But what we learned was when we were first doing the research on this, which is what we did, we did, you know, two clinical trials before offering anything to anyone other than the research participants. But what we learned was, wow, like Barbara's work's amazing. It really can reliably change the brain and behavior. That's amazing. But then what we learned in going to the clinical market 
and this is where the business comes in. Many of the providers that were out there serving the population said, that's great. That's really exciting. Good for you. But it's also kind of problematic because it's another silo in a silo of care. It's mm-hmm. a cool program. It's an amazing program. But if we wanted to make this more efficient for us on the business and operational perspective, you'd have to scale it with integration of other programs. So that's where, you know, aerobic exercise, mindfulness, Barbara's amazing program, like it's so essential and important to what we do. But then also the key, and this is where I really wanted to get your feedback on, was we internally were so excited about these cognitive changes, but our bias was towards cognition, right? So we acknowledged that. We're like, we're cognitive nerds. We love this stuff. And then we surveyed our clients and asked them, what is working so well for you? What's the outcome of this program? Is it worth it? Better cognitive health. And what they said was improved quality of life. I'm managing relationships better. I'm managing my emotions better. I'm moving better. You know, all of these things are giving me a better life. And we're like, oh, guess what? We were wrong. (laughs) The client (laughs) is right. And it was that level of integration and that level of, I guess it's humility, being able to just say, we may be wrong here, folks, and surveying them. And they were right. And then the key was we were measuring cognition because we love it. But then what we did that I really loved, and it was through a lot of mentors in occupational med, they said, if you want to look at change, if improving quality of life is what they're getting, then you need to reliably measure that mm-hmm. in a way that's mm-hmm. valid, normed, and steady. That was the big pivot we made was our primary outcome measure is a valid, normed, and steady measure of quality of life for that individual. And it's all, it's taking that concept from Strava, right? Progress is measuring yourself today against yourself yesterday, right? And it's just continuing that forward. Yeah. And do you think, Mark, though, that so, you know, I'm a brain nerd too, right? So that cognition and the increase and expansion of that cognition, though, that is what gives those people the ability to have that improved quality of life. So it's sort of the foundation for that. And people don't go out and think, oh, okay, my IQ score now has jumped, you know, whatever points. That's not their measure. Their measure is their quality of life. But until you can get that jump in that cognition, you don't get the improvement in quality of life. Well, yes, for cognition. However, I'd push a little bit on that, that, you you know, to get even better cognition, you've got to move. You know, you talk about these integrated health clinics, right? Which I am a big fan of. But many of them, I looked at what they were doing and I was so excited. I'm like, wow, this is so cool what you're doing. I said, what system are you using to measure all of these variables working together? And many of them are still not really doing that very well yet. They haven't Mm -hmm. built out that system. They're doing it in many of the different professionals. So they have the physiotherapist working on some of the aerobic movement stuff with a kinesiologist. They might have a psychologist working on some cognitive sort of programs. And then they may have you know, a yoga teacher working on some of the mindfulness with them. But because of the kind of decentralized nature of that and different professionals working with them, it doesn't actually serve the client as well as it could because it has to have a system first. So Mm -hmm. what we've come to learn is training cognition is amazing and it's a total game changer for the lives of that individual. No question. And Barbara, I mean, I'm biased. I'm a big fan of Barbara and her work, but there's other good programs out there too. But that cognitive exercise, one individual we worked with, two great examples, both amazing women. One of them, anoxic overdose. We tried to get her to be able to engage in the cognitive program and she couldn't yet. But then she started walking on the treadmill, started building that behavior and the self-concept to a point where, oh my God, I can do this. I can actually move. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Mm -hmm. And what that is also doing is kind of improving her attention system to be able to engage in cognitively tasking tasks. So that was like the precursor to her neuroplasticity. It was wonderful to observe it. And then another woman, same kind of thing. She was going through cancer chemotherapy and radiation. She had a brain cancer. And at times when in treatment, if we were only doing the cognition, the cognitive training element of it, her outcomes would not have been as good as they were because there was times when she just, just simply could not do that. So it's about habits and behavior. 
and finding the right recipe for each individual related to the goals they're trying to achieve in their quality of life. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's for each individual. It's so each person's brain is so individually developed in its own unique way that there is no formula. And that I think is another real barrier for the adoption of uh, neuroplasticity, right? There are components that you add in like the exercise, like the mindfulness, like the diet and nutrition and the cognitive exercises. But what works for one individual is not necessarily going to work for the other individual. It has to be so tailored that it makes it hard to know how to use it and how to apply it. Mm -hmm. So back to kind of the questions of, you know, why aren't the healthcare professionals using it? I think it makes it very difficult, right? Mm -hmm. We almost need in a lot of ways, sort of a neuroplasticity sales arm (laughs) to go out. You can uh, relate it to maybe like a pharmaceutical sales rep, right? Mm -hmm. So they're out there talking to these healthcare professionals, helping them understand the nuances of how each of these therapies work, the range of the therapies. And then you would maybe get a little bit better traction because it's not straightforward. It's not, do you just take this pill or you go exercise for 30 minutes a day, or you, Mm -hmm. you know, you cut out your fats and carbs and sugar. It's very individualized. And so you need expertise involved in that training of those healthcare professionals. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah, I like what you brought up there about the layering effect of neuroplasticity. And it's real important, I think, that people understand there are these fundamentals, kind of like what you just said, that person had to learn to be able to move before she could apply some of the cognitive components. And you see that in a lot of brain injury, a lot of the developmental delays, where you have to really start a more basic foundation and then work your way up. It's Mm -hmm. Almost like one of the speakers we just had in our summit really talked a lot about this. And maybe it was Barbara, actually, that Mm -hmm. it's almost like, oh, no, it was Marla Golden, actually, from her experience when she had encephalitis and her mother developed a program for her not knowing anything about neuroplasticity, Mm -hmm. but just taking her back to she was, I think, 10 or 12 when that happened to her. Her mother took her back to where she was developmentally having raised three kids, she's like, well, I think she's back on par with like what an eight-year-old would be. Right. And so then she started treating her and giving her those tasks that uh, would have been appropriate with her level of development. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a critical component that we need to understand with neuroplasticity and why it takes time. Right. And I think that's the other issue Uh, One more, I won't say the other, but one more issue with the adoption of neuroplasticity on a broader scale is it takes longer. I have a really good friend who owns a physical therapy facility with multiple locations, you know, and talking with her, I'm like, why don't you put these programs Mm -hmm. in place? She knew about them. She's like, well, because people want a quick fix. They don't want to pay for their child to go through a six month program. They want to see benefits in three to four weeks, right? So it's our instant mindset and being used to being able to sort of take a medication and don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of medication. It's Mm -hmm. done wonders for me, but I think there has to be an add-on component to that. And we have to understand that it may take time to address these things. So that education is also a critical component. Yeah. I think you hit the nail right on the head. It comes down to education, you know, And with the physical therapist, you know, the reality that I think is really interesting is that for good physiotherapy to work, most of the work is not done in the clinic. It's done at home by Mm. the patient and the compliance to that is very low. So that's probably very frustrating for the physiotherapist, but also just a reality. And when you look at the higher intensity, higher touch point physiotherapy, probably a lot more effective in terms of the individual achieving the goal and the compliance would probably be a lot higher as well. However, you're so right with all of us humans, you know, it's hard for us to change our behavior and we like the easy way. We want the easy way, but many times the easy way does not yield the result that we're trying to get. If, and this is the key, if we really want it and what is really challenging and 
quite frustrating is that I get that mindset completely. And that is most because they've got to not only treat their patients, they've got to, you know, pay their employees. They've got to be able to pay their rent. They got to run the business on top of being good providers. So that's really hard, but not providing the option for a better outcome. Like that's the interesting part for me that I really like pushing on and understanding a little bit better is what is standing in the way of having that option there? Because if they don't provide the option, then Mm -hmm. they could not be doing the best for their client. And that's not good. Like that's a bad thing. And it just takes time, right? It takes time and mass to get there, but it's interesting because I understand that perspective. I really get it and I hear it frequently. However, it's really exciting when you hear an organization say, that's been a problem. There's one woman who runs physio clinics up here and she found us and said, wow, I have struggled for so long with many of my concussion clients that struggle with cognition. I just can't find a solution. We're doing these pen and paper tasks. They're not scalable. They're hard to track. They're very heavy and dependent on the clinician. They're burning clinicians out and we can't track outcomes. I want to do this. I want to find a way to do that. But maybe others aren't even aware that it's a problem. That's the other thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. like as a physical therapist, is the brain really your scope of practice? I would argue, yes, absolutely it is. But some may not, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a holdover from, you know, healthcare and how it's developed the the education system for healthcare. You know, you become a cardiologist, you become an ophthalmologist, you become Mm -hmm. something else and a podiatrist. And you don't look at the system as, as a whole, which is where I think, you know, the movement for functional medicine really is trying to address that. Looking at the individual as a whole, back to your comment about the system. And the body really is a system. And I think people are starting to realize that, again, back to the mindfulness, I think that that's challenging that perception in its own way. Anybody who meditates and spends that time can't ignore that fact. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really helping to change the way people are looking at it in a a very innocuous way. So I do have hope (laughs) that that is going to change, even though there's a lot of frustration. And, you know, one of the other things we want to really try and do is, you know, the development component. So we have three things we work on, awareness, access, and development. I've talked a little bit about the awareness and the access to it, but the other piece is the development. And these three things are so intertwined. We want to help providers like yourself who are really bringing all these things to the forefront develop and scale. We're looking at putting in a business accelerator as well as putting sort of a venture fund together, an investment fund to help providers like yourself scale and Barbara scale. And there's so many of the providers that really could benefit from that access to business experience Mm -hmm. and having more of these businesses out there will help change that mindset as well. Is if there's a neuroplasticity center on your corner, right? You're going to say, what is this about? Well, who's going in there? Oh, you know, my friend um, Lisa went in there and, you know, she's now able to drive again after her stroke. And so that has to change. The access has to change. And to change the access, you've got to be able to change people who can afford it. So we've got to be able to address that. And so what do the insurance companies need to uh, be able to fund these things so that they can be on every corner? They've got to have that research. And even if the research isn't out there, you've got to have enough awareness (laughs) that there is this other option out there, which will help shift that attitude. And so it's all very circular and you've got to address all three of those to move everything forward. And at the root of it is, in my opinion, is just education. It's not only educating the healthcare professionals, but educating the individuals that they should have ownership for their healthcare and their quality of life. Yeah, I I love what you said there. And I I'm with you, you know, you covered, I was going to ask you your hope for the future. There it is. 
You know, I, I totally agree. You know, it's hard when we think about, you know, physiotherapy clinics within the two mile radius of where I live. There are a handful of physiotherapy clinics and that's wonderful. That's great. What I am really excited about is the opportunity to have brain health clinics on every corner as well, because I am very optimistic about the future because I think that there's a lot of really interesting brain health assessments that are coming out that are going to be scalable and accessible. And I think that's really exciting. You know, when I first started in this work, neuroplasticity was not talked about. I was that guy at the party talking about brains and my poor wife was like, oh God, here he goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but now it's something that's quite commonplace. And, you know, again, kudos to you for the mission that you're on with this work, because I know it's rooted in service. It's rooted in helping others understand what may be possible for them and helping them to understand that there are some options that may be a little less specific and narrow in nature. And I think that's, you know, a really interesting point that you brought up that I really, really think needs to be lifted up is specialization is great. Like it can be really, 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 really good. However, it can also be when we go too specialized too quickly, it can actually be a, a problem. And, you know, there's a really interesting book out there by David Epstein called Range. And the whole mm. concept around it was the generalists are very, very important because specialization, and one of the quotes that I love is specialization is obvious. Keep going straight. Breadth is trickier to grow. And it's one I just go, oh, right. <laughs> you know, like it's true though, right? So when we think about these medical professionals, my goodness, it makes you think a house. Remember that show house? Remember yeah. him? Yeah. So he would get these complex, really complex cases, right? And a lot of the providers that we work with, they specialize in complex, complex cases. But something they do really, really well is they generalize well. They're like, hold on, what are we experiencing? What are the symptoms? You know, oh, what are we? Oh, okay. Let's stand back. Let's get the 30,000 foot view of what's going on here and then start to dig. But when we yeah. do too fast, it can be a little bit dangerous. Yeah. You know, one of the things I envision happening in the future, similar to what you said about a brain health facility on every corner, is we need to develop an educational program within some of these universities that are looking at this that look at applied neuroplasticity and say, okay, we've got a neuroplasticity that helps from auditory processing. We've got neuroplasticity type um, therapies that look at cognitive improvements. We've got neuroplasticity type therapies that look at improving your mobility and your movement coordination and your mm -hmm. integration of your senses. But you need someone who steps back and says, okay, when do I apply this, this, and this, and in what order, and for what type of patients do these work well on? And to do that, you've got to have these assessments that you spoke about. And I get a lot of questions. This is probably the, the number one question I get is, well, I see you, you're talking about these therapies are out there, but a lot of them cross over. Which one should I try? I have some good ideas about maybe where you should start, but I, I'm not a cognitive expert. I'm not, you know, a neuroscientist right. and you need somebody with that skill set to help organize the therapies that are out there and help people and individuals determine where they should start, you know, especially if you're going through that. And I remember that very well from my days when my daughter was diagnosed with dyslexia and her challenges. You know, I was like, I deer in the headlights, right? You go buy a bunch of books, you read, you call yeah. people, you know, you go to speak to the psychologist. You, you know, it was a year-long process, quite frankly, before I really understood what was actually happening and maybe what might work. But if you're somebody who's suffering from multiple sclerosis yourself or who's had a brain injury, you don't have the capacity to do that yourself. You right. need some expert to help you do that. And kind of back to my earlier comment is unfortunately, you know, the neuroscientists that are out there, they don't understand the application of this well enough to be able to help 
direct you. And, uh, you know, Clark Elliott explained that in his book with brain injury very well. And Mm -hmm. he went through that process. He tried everybody and was at the pinnacle of care and was receiving that and sought it out. He had the wherewithal to go seek it out, but they didn't have any solutions for him. Right. Mm -hmm. It was just, Mm -hmm. he, he, he just happened to learn about Debbie Zielinski and Donnelly Marcus. And if that doesn't show you that there's a gap (laughs) and you don't see that, then, you know, back to your point, you, you really are sort of eyes wide shut in your care practice. And his book has made a huge difference in creating that awareness. And, you know, there've been a lot of neuroscientists who've said, you know, this has changed the way that I treat patients going forward, but there aren't enough people out there who have read that book and who have, I guess, embraced that mindset. You know, that's what I hope we're here to do. You and myself and Barbara and, you know, all of the other providers that are out there treating patients on a day-to-day basis. That's the message we're trying to get out. Yeah, I love it. That's great. So for people that are listening here, they're like, wow, you know, this is cool. What you're doing is cool. How do they get a hold of you? How do they support what you're doing? How do they get involved? Well, so you can find out uh, more about us on our website, npallies.org. So you can reach us there for and get a good sense of what we're doing. I would say uh, for anybody who's listening who wants to get involved, certainly there's a couple of areas where we're looking for help. One is we're trying to build our board around uh, and add some individuals who have expertise in research because we really want, and we've got a couple of research ideas that we need help scoping and defining and finding those partners. So if you're in an institution like Stanford or Harvard or something of that nature, and you're interested in doing some neuroplasticity-based work that's going to really put your name on the map, please uh, do reach out to us. We've got, I think, some really low-hanging fruit that will really shift the industry and help generate the acceptance that's needed in the healthcare space for this. And then I guess the other real area that we're looking to do is try to build collaboration around a lot of the smaller organizations. You know, every city basically, and certainly every state has an organization that's focused on brain health. And they were motivated in a similar way as I was by their own personal story. So there are countless organizations doing really amazing work, but they're small in their scope and nature, and they're struggling to get funding. And we want to bring all of those into an umbrella type organization so that we can help when somebody calls us and says, you know, I've got such and such a challenge. Where can I go to get help? We're looking to build a local organization so that we can help send people to resources that are in their geography. Love it. That's great. Please, please do. Sherry's amazing. She's doing really important work. Your expertise is needed in this space. There's no question. Are there any kind of influences that really help to inspire you in this work that you wanted to give a quick shout out to for the impact that they had on you and your vision? Well, Mark, I mean, honestly, I I know you might see this as pandering just a little bit, but you really are one of the people that motivated me in this space, because I know you do this, again, out of servant leadership, as you've put it, and your personal story seriously motivates me. I will also say the Shepherd Center, I'm here in Atlanta, and it's one of the top organizations in the world for treating people with brain injury and spinal cord difficulties and for multiple sclerosis. And I go there, I went there on a regular basis with my mother and to see the difference that those people have made. There wasn't a day that I didn't come out of there crying, you know, with just a little teared up because of how compassionate and the kindness that they had and the ability to try different things. There are always really researching and trying. Good Different people, things. good, great organization, good great, good people. And uh, yeah. and there's a lot of really good people out there. So shout out to Shepherd Center, all of them out there. Everybody I've met there has been amazing. And I know they're not alone. There's a lot of great uh, organizations doing amazing work. So shout out to all of you doing the great stuff that you're doing. And obviously your daughter and your mom, obviously big influence as well. But I want to say to you, you know, your capacity to have this action bias really inspires me. The fact that we talked about this, listeners, <laughs> we talked about this concept a couple of years ago, 
and you're like, I'm working on something. And I'm going to, I'm like, however I can be of service, let me know, keep me posted. And you didn't just talk about it. You did it. And you ran a great conference a couple of weeks ago. It was excellent. You know, we'll have that linked in the show notes so people can go and look at some of the talks that Cherry's talking about and some of the great professionals that are doing really, really important work to help to inform practice. Because it's all about that. It's all about education. It's all about awareness. You know, some people may not choose to do a more neuroplastic intervention. That's okay. As long as they know it's an option. That's okay. That's fine. (laughs) None of us are saying you need to do that. It's just you should be able to have the option to know. That's all. That's it. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, spot on, right? I want it to be an option. I want people to be able to see that it's there. I want them to know that the science behind it is researchable, that they can go and get the information they need to make an informed decision. Right now, that information is not out there. It's not easily accessible. And that is something that we really want to try and change. We want you to know that it's there. We want you to know that you can find out about it. And we want you to be able to get it to a provider in your city. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, I want to thank you again. And maybe we'll do this again because it was so informative. And I hope everyone who's listening here, I hope your day's a little bit better from having, you know, Sherry and her message to ultimately create a better society for all of us. So thank you again. If this episode, you know, you listened this long and it made sense for you, download it, share it, click on uh, Sherry's links, uh, learn more about her work. And if you want to get involved, reach out to her. Thank you. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and wanna learn more about the Bears platform, we've tried to make it easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, Training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neuro rehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.